0: So if you have your word or have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12. The early chapters of Luke, about Luke 1 through 8, is Luke writing to his friend Theophilus trying to get his friend to come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. That Jesus is one who commands storms and winds and they obey him, that he can get sickness and illness to leave with a word or with a touch, that he can do things no one else can do, that he can command demons to leave. And as they do so, they recognize him as being the Holy One of God, that he's the Son of God, and that he ultimately is 100% man and 100% God. And then from then on, for about the next eight chapters or so, Luke is, gives us the sayings of Jesus. So if what he says about Jesus is that he's the son of God, then this is what Jesus says for you and me as his followers, how we're supposed to live our life. So we pick up that conversation with how his disciples are to be in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to talk primarily about three things. The first one is how we as Jesus followers are to conduct ourselves with others, like how we're just supposed to be. The second thing is is how we are to conduct ourselves in regards to money or um, possessions. And thirdly, how we're to conduct ourselves in regards to spiritual matters. So with that, let's jump in Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So there's so many people come to see Jesus that they're literally trampling each other. Just tons and tons of people. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And unless you are very meticulous about your diet or you bake your own bread at home or you're gluten-free, you probably don't think about what goes into your bread. And so I'm a kid's pastor. So I have to take things that are in the Bible and I have to kind of find a way to explain them to kids that would make them compelling, that would stick with them. And when I say the leaven of the Pharisees, kids are like, I don't know what that is, man. But so what leaven is, is it's this component that it's fermented. And if you add it to your mixture, it spreads across the whole thing. It has far-reaching capabilities. Can, if you don't want it, it can contaminate, contaminate an entire dish. So you wouldn't want that. So This is the way I would explain it. I pray your forgiveness if it's not the way you would explain it. But your kids do remember stuff like this. So I got an aunt. She's got three teenage daughters. And those teenage daughters will come and they'll ask their mom, hey, can we watch this TV show or can we watch this movie or listen to this kind of music? And my aunt and uncle have really good rules about what they can and cannot listen to in their house. So my aunt will pull up the movie on Focus on the Family. and She'll say, well... It has this word in it, or it has this scene in it, and we don't do that here. And the girls will go, oh, mom, please, please, can we just watch it? Here, we'll have the remote, and we'll mute it when we see he's going to say it, or we'll fast forward it, and it's like we won't even know it's there. And she goes, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. While you guys are watching the movie, I'm going to go make some brownies. And while I'm getting the brownies together, I'm going to go outside, and I'm going to get just a little bit of dog poop. I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna put the little bit of dog poop in the brownie mix. How much is too much dog poop in the brownie mix? Any amount. It contaminates the whole thing. Like brownies, we had some out front, have when you're looking at them, there is limitless possibility to the satisfaction of that dessert. But as soon as you hear someone gonna be like, hey, I think I'm gonna have some of those. This look fantastic. Someone says, Well, there's there's a little bit of poop in it. All of a sudden, you don't want anything to do. With that, so Jesus is saying, "Beware of the leaven of the of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That hypocrisy is like a little bit of poop in the brownie mix, and all the potential God has for your life, what He wants for you, it gets contaminated. So the hypocrisy of the Pharisees that we're familiar with is that they would be these." Guys who would be giving to the poor, they would be speaking in scripture with people, they would be praying out loud for people, but only when people could see them. They'd be giving to the poor only when it was a show. They would be speaking in scripture just to get people to convince that they were super wise and super godly. They're very pious people. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, that on the outside, they look super good, don't they? They look really nice, but there's contamination in there. But there's a second kind of hypocrisy, and that's what Jesus talks about in the rest of this chapter. And that's when you know Jesus is God, and you know that your sins have been redeemed, that, that Jesus is your propitiation, that he's risen from the grave, that you have eternity to look forward to with him, and yet your friends, maybe even your family members, your coworkers would never have any idea that you have a relationship with Jesus. It's the other kind of hypocrisy is where you call yourself saved, but it really doesn't look that way to anyone else. And so Jesus addresses that in the rest of this section. So verse chapter two, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. So basically just choose the way you're going to live. If you're gonna say something in quiet, Say it like everyone's going to know. It's kind of like, imagine if you had a tape recorder around your neck, and at the end of every day, you had to give an account for everything you said, not only to your immediate family, but also to your coworkers and your boss and anyone that you were talking about. It probably changed the way you talk, right? Or what if you were sending a text message, and every time you talked about somebody, your phone glitched and included them in it? You ever done that? where you're texting and you're like, "Oh man, this person makes me so mad and then you find out you sent it to them." Uh, it's like the worst feeling in the world, right? Well, I kind of the first time I read this, the first thing I thought of is we as Christians as, in, as people, it's really, really easy to slander. It's really, really easy to talk bad about other people or other Christians or other churches. We've been going through James on Sundays, and spoiler alert for any of you who haven't read James, in James chapter 3, James specifically talks about the tongue, talking to believers, that the tongue is an untamed evil. It's set on fire by hell is what it says, that we really have difficulty controlling what we say. And I think that when we slander, when we assassinate other people's character, as while calling ourselves Christians, it can be a little bit of poop in our brownie mix. All of a sudden, we can look really nice, but then it, it's not, it takes away from all that God has for us. So continuing, verse chapter 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but i will warn you about whom to fear fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell yes i tell you fear him are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before god why even the hairs of your head are all numbered fear not you are of more value than many sparrows and i tell you Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say." So, I'm sure you do. I know I do. You have people in your life who you can almost be a little wary of what you say when they're around because you don't want to offend them or you don't want to make them feel weird. Or maybe there's some people even that you have this routine with your family where you pray at dinner, but then when you go out with them, well, we don't because of whatever. It's kind of funny that there's this fear of, well, I'm afraid of what they might think of me or I'm afraid that I'll make them feel strange or whatever. And Jesus is saying, why are you so worried about what they think? Like the very worst thing that they could do right now in the middle of Applebee's is kill you, right? right? Like (laughs) they're probably not going to do that. You should probably fear the one who's greater than them. Matt has got the best saying in his office. It's, I'm so much more afraid of Jesus than I am of being the pastor of a small church. I think it's brilliant. And it really, it should filter the way that we do life. Like, okay. Okay. I was thinking about like there's a certain family that I'm super connected with with my family and I was talking with Matt Hamilton. I go, How, what's the best way to be a, a witness to these people? Because it's, it's kind of awkward to go, hey, you know, I've been praying about it and you need Jesus or you're gonna go to hell. That doesn't normally go well, right? That's not normally, oh yeah, they're not super receptive to that. They're like, oh, thank you for telling me. No, but he says, he goes, well, here's what I do. I talk about Jesus constantly. It's kind of like if you have a coworker and you've been working with them every day for two years, and then you find out they've been married for 20 years, and they never once talked about their spouse, you'd be kind of like, I don't know if he likes his spouse. But he's like, I love Jesus. And so it just comes up. It's like, man, Jesus has made, especially in here, oh my goodness, what a beautiful day Jesus gave us today amen, right? And it just comes up organically. Just Jesus is what I'm about. It's who I talk about. My favorite thing is Chad Hansen. If you ask Chad and you go, hey, Chad, how are you doing? I don't know if you know what he'll say, but he says, have you seen my wife? I'm killing it. That is brilliant. It's just organic. The thing that you love should come out of you. It should just be who you are. And your friends are probably hanging around you because they like you. And they genuinely like who you are. And so if who you are just becomes to show your love for Jesus, it just comes out of you. Eventually, they might have some questions or they know who to talk to about Jesus. God might have them in your life because you're the only person to share Jesus with them. And every time that you don't share Jesus with them or you are not outspoken about your love for Jesus, it robs them of that opportunity. And then Jesus talks about, well, what if... Uh, It's to don't be anxious about what will happen if they persecute you. It's a little bit different for the people that Jesus was talking about, because they had some real persecution. They had to worry about, if I talk about Jesus, bad stuff might happen to my family. We don't really have that same kind of persecution. It might be, well, if I talk about Jesus, they might unfriend me on Facebook. It's a little bit different. But the concept is still the same, that if we're outspoken about our love for Jesus, and someone gets frustrated and upset about it, just... Trust. Don't have pre-worked up in your head what you're going to say. It's not going to go well. Just trust the Holy Spirit in you. That hey, I'm sorry if I offended you. That's just I love Jesus. It's just who I am. God's made a beautiful day. So I don't know how you would say it. And then moving on, this is Jesus telling believers how we're to conduct ourselves in regards to material possessions. Someone in the crowd said to him, "Teacher, my brother." Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? It would be really common for people to come to a rabbi for these squabbles like this, or having to deal with inheritance or debt. So this is the older brother has inherited everything from his parents. And um, he's come to Jesus saying, Jesus, tell him to divide it. And Jesus goes, that's not why I'm here. So mom and dad, it's okay if I get everything. Jesus says so. so just keep that up there. But he says, this isn't what I'm here for. I'm here for such a greater thing than this. And so he gives him a story. He says, verse 15, and he said to them, "'Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. "'For one's life does not consist "'in the abundance of his possessions. "'And he told them a parable, "'saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. "'And he thought to himself, "'What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? "'And he said, I will do this.'" that there's this guy who does really well and then he invests his money really well and he looks at his life and he goes, great, now life is, I've done it, I'm set. Now I can just relax and enjoy myself. All of the strife in life is over. All of the toil is gone and now I can just be. And God says, that's super foolish. That's not what life is about. And Jesus says, that we have to be on our guard against all covetousness. So other versions will say greed. And it's interesting because Jesus never says to be on your guard against any other kind of sin. Jesus never says, be on your guard against adultery, even though adultery is just as destructive. Adultery destroys families, it, it ruins relationships, all trust, it has far reaching consequences, but Jesus never says, be on your guard against it. It's, Probably because when you are in the act of committing adultery, you're aware of what you're doing. No one's ever like, oh my gosh, you're not my spouse. (laughs) But with greed, it sneaks up on you. You can be greedy and not even know it. Like, I'm sure we all know someone who's greedy, but no one thinks that they're greedy. No one thinks of themselves Goes, man, I'm super greedy. And so Jesus is saying, this problem that you have isn't the inheritance split. It's this money sickness that's in you. So Jesus tells a story with one of the issues of money sickness. And he divides it down to two in the next section. So let's read that and we'll come back. So verse 22, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing." "'Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, "'they have neither storehouse nor barn, "'and yet God feeds them. "'Of how much more value are you than the birds? "'And which of you, by being anxious, "'can add a single hour to his span of life? "'If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, "'why are you anxious about the rest?' "'Consider the lilies, how they grow. "'They neither toil nor spin. "'Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory "'was not arrayed like one of these. "'But if God so clothes the grass, "'which is alive in the field today, "'and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, "'how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? "'And do not seek what you are to eat "'and what you are to drink, nor be worried. "'For all the nations of the world "'seek after these things, "'and your Father knows that you need them. "'Instead, seek his kingdom,' And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the first thing that you see in this rich man who stored up his goods is he's done what Jesus has us consider the ravens about. In verse 24, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. This guy, when he did really well, what he said is, this is my security. I found my security in money. Jesus is saying, consider the ravens. They're not worried about where they're going to sleep. They're not worried about where they store stuff. God takes care of them. This guy, he says, okay, I've got my place. I've built a bigger home. I've got more storehouse. I've invested all this stuff. I'm all right. The strife of my life is over. I don't have to worry about toil. I don't have to worry about working anymore. There's nothing left to be achieved. And Jesus says, that's a really dangerous road to head down. Because I don't know if you know, there's a man named John D. Rockefeller. And he's my favorite person for illustration for the kids. Because he was the world's first billionaire. He had more money than anyone else. And when he was in an interview, he was asked, so now that you have more than anybody what now do you want? And he said, just one more dollar. Just, that's all I want, just one more dollar. But then you get that and you, you just one more because that didn't quite satisfy. When you need one more. When we have these things, these things that get elevated above people, investments are good. I'm not saying they're not. Investments are really good. In fact, Jesus, talk, or at least Proverbs talks about them a bunch, that a wise woman is someone who invests her husband's money well. Like a good wife is someone who does that. So I'm not saying investments are bad. In fact, Abraham had a lot of wealth, had a lot of material possessions. He's a good guy. Job had a lot of wealth, a lot of material possessions. And God looks at him and says, there's no one righteous like him in all the world. So having material possessions isn't bad. It's when the priority of it becomes elevated above other things. When all of a sudden, your ability to be generous with people gets lessened because you're thinking about how you could have used that money to further your investment elsewhere, or that money is taking away from your security. That money is taken away from your opportunity of comfort or whatever you think that it should be. And Jesus is instead saying, that's not what it's about at all. You can consider the ravens where they have nothing and God takes care of them, that they have nothing and God provides. The other thing that can happen with money, which Jesus illustrates here, is that it can become our beauty, So you look at the lilies, and Jesus says, consider them. They're more beautiful than Solomon could have ever made any of his clothing or ever have been arrayed. And yet, if God allows them to exist today in all that beauty, only for tomorrow, for them to be plucked up and thrown into the oven, how much more is he going to take care of you? Money can become our beauty in that it becomes the way that we fit in. It becomes, well, if I don't have the new iPhone, I'm less. If I don't have a brand new car, or if I don't have as big a house as my neighbor or my brother, the things that I have, I won't fit in. I won't be complete. I don't know if you guys have ever felt that where you're like, there's something. And if only I have that thing, then I'll be happy. And that's always a lie. That's where something has been elevated too high. The order of your life has gone disordered. All of a sudden there's something you go, man, if I only had that thing, Well, then I could have rest. Then I could be complete. Then I I could fit in. Then I'd be beautiful. If ever that happens, the order's mixed up. And that's why Jesus calls it a money sickness. It becomes covetousness. It's you looking at something else going, if only I had that, then I'd be happy. If only I had one more dollar, then I'd be satisfied. And it never satisfies. And it's a little bit of poop in the brownie mix. It takes away from all that God has for you. And then we hit, which is really fun but also really scary, these are the hard sayings of Jesus. When I was looking at different commentaries, it almost got prefaced every time with, these are the hard sayings of Jesus. And so they're really fun. So we'll jump into that. It's uh, verse 35. This is how we as believers are to conduct this, what I call it, is to conduct ourselves in regards to spiritual things. Stay dressed for action, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant when the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come at a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful." And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more. So Jesus gives us this picture. There's a master who leaves Gives him a command, stay dressed, stay ready. I want you looking outside. I want the lamps on. I want you prepared for when I come back. Jesus isn't talking about he wants you and I to go home and to keep the porch light on and all the things going because he's got stock and a vista and Pacific power and that's how he's gonna fulfill your things and he's just waiting for that money to come in. That's not what God is saying. Jesus is not talking about physical lamps burning. He's talking about spiritual things. Jesus wants us to be people who are constantly aware and has on the forefront of our mind, Jesus could come back today. So how is this going to coat the way that I talk to people? How is this going to cover the way that I'm generous? How is this going to change the way that I do things, how I interact with my family, how I text people, how I conduct my business? How is this going to cover my entire life? And so Jesus says that there's two kinds of people. There's the kind that are faithful. And here's what's really interesting and what's so amazing is that for us, if a boss comes in and says, I want you to complete this job. You're going to stay up all night. And when I come home, I'll greet you. When he comes home and he sees that you've done a good job, he'll say, good job. You did what I asked you to do. Now prepare my food. Now you have your next task. Here's what's so interesting about our God is when he comes back and he says, you did what I've asked you to do, our God has the faithful sit at a table. A table's a place of celebration, of drinking wine, of sharing experiences, of excitement, of fun, of laughter, of telling jokes, of enjoying one each other, uh, enjoying each other. And God dressed himself for service to serve the faithful. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't that turn everything about how we do life on its head? Like, if you are very wealthy, you pay other people to do the serving. You pay other people to do the things that you wouldn't normally want to do. But our God, when we do well, he serves us. And here's what I love. I love the ESV. I think it's brilliant and it makes the Bible and the word of God really attainable for us. But in chapter or verse 37, it says, blessed are those servants "...whom the master finds awake when he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them." It, it has that phrase, dress himself, which is fine, but older translations use the word "gird." But we don't have that thought anymore, so it doesn't get translated straight away. It wants to translate it in a way that we can all understand. Well, this idea of gird was for Jewish people It would be hot outside. They didn't have AC. Everything they did was hot and arid. And so they would have long flowing robes. Now, when you needed to do some sort of strenuous activity, like lift something heavy or do something big and difficult, you would take up all those flowing robes and you would tuck them into your belt. And that's girding yourself. And here's what's amazing is Jesus says that for the faithful, For those who love God and called according to his purpose, those people who are watching for Jesus, that God asked them to sit at the table, our God in his infinite power, his infinite ability will take up all of himself to make our joy complete, to make everything that's in heaven the best that it could ever be. When we see God, he'll say, yeah, yeah well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. He'll give us that, but you'll also give this, us this joy that we can't even fathom here on earth, that God in his infinite power would use everything in himself. It's like, imagine all of this, God made with a word. How easy are words? Our God is going to have to gird himself. Our God is going to take up everything in himself to make heaven the best it could be. I was reading that going, that's fantastic. Just the imagery that Jesus used is specific and I think it's intentional to get us to go, wow, our God is super generous. And then there's a verse in here that no one has hung up in their kitchen. Like, have you ever been to someone's house and it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you're like, yeah. Have you ever been in someone's house and it says, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. You ever seen that on a cutting board? Oh, brilliant. That's a business I'm interested in getting into. (laughs) No, you never see that in like an entryway or in some sort of encouraging poster. But here's why it would be so encouraging. And here's what I think that this did for the early church, is it reminded them constantly that our God sees everything. Our God is into all the meticulous pieces of our life. Earlier in this chapter, it says God knows the very number of hairs that we have on our head. He doesn't miss a lot. And so when great injustice happens, we can trust that our God is just, And our God sees. And we can trust the care of all injustice to him. It's not ours to deal with. John chapter 5 says, All judgment has been given over from the Father to the Son. That we can go about life with this expectation of great joy. And here's what's awesome about, it's this paradox of the kingdom. That the kingdom's coming. Like, this is something we look forward to. We look forward to all injustice being made right. That all the wrongs will be made right. All bad things will be made undone. And we look forward to this joy that will be complete, this, this exciting moment But here's what's awesome is in verse 32, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, even today. That the kingdom can be experienced today. And I think you experience that kingdom when you really do give over injustice to God. That's not your deal to go and seek justice. It's not your deal to go and get someone to beg you for forgiveness. It's your deal to instead be one who easily forgives. And then we'll come back to this, because this ended up being my favorite spot. But let's read the rest, and we'll tie it all together. Verse 48. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division— from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see... The south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison." I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So for Christmas, I think our verse should be, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. (laughs) So Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and he longs for it to already be kindled. And he's got this baptism that he's longing for and he wishes it would be already be here. He's in great distress until it is accomplished. The Old Testament Whenever fire is talked about, it's God's righteous judgment. It's God's right judgment on the world. And what we know is that when you have, an, like let's say you got ore, you just have this rock. And if any of one of us, unless you're a specialist, looks at it, you go, oh, cool. But then when it's put into intense fire and intense heat, what's left? The precious, the things that can't burn away. And so Jesus is saying, that he longs for the day. Oh my goodness, I'm waiting for it. That when we can burn away all that's impure, all that's bad, all that's broken, all that's messed up, that there's a baptism coming. Jesus was baptized in Luke chapter three. Jesus isn't talking about that baptism. He's talking about the cross, that Jesus is looking forward to this day, to this time, that when all that's impure, he'll be able to take away, that he'll be able to break apart. Because here's the thing, there's Two groups of people. There's the faithful and there's the unfaithful. And unfortunately, just even from what's in this chapter, we're all unfaithful. We are all guilty of slander. I'm sure of it. We're Christians. We're all guilty of talking bad about someone else. We're all guilty of worrying about what other people think of us more than what God thinks of us. We're all guilty about putting things out of order, where things can be put before God and before man, and we can put money before it, and we can put what makes us beautiful before it. We are all, the Bible tells us, all unrighteous, that no one meets God's standard. No, not one. And that's a bummer, because for me then, that means what I have to look forward to is not a table, what I've looked forward to is cut into pieces. And here's what I got so excited about when reading this chapter because my mind immediately went somewhere else where the Bible talks about cut into pieces and it's Abraham. There's another time when God makes a promise. This is a promise and looming in the background is this idea. And so God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm gonna make you a promise that you're gonna have offspring, that you're gonna have a child. And Abraham goes, I don't really know, but okay. So God goes, okay, we're gonna make a deal. So he says, go get a bunch of animals and cut them in half. And Abraham would be familiar with this practice. If a servant went to a master and said, I need to borrow some money, the master would have the servant cut an animal in half. They would meet in the middle and the servant would say, if I don't make good on my end to repay you back, let me become like this animal cut in pieces. And so here's what God did with Abraham. God tells Abraham, get all these animals, cut them in half. So Abraham's aware of this. He goes, okay, we're going to make a deal. He cuts them all in half and then God shows up as a flaming cloud and he walks through the entirety of those animals. He doesn't meet in the middle. He, he goes all the way through because he knows we're unfaithful. We went through Abraham. We went through Genesis a few years back. We know Abraham's very unfaithful. We know Abraham's not good to his wife. We know that every single person aside from Jesus in his line was unfaithful and failed majorly. Even the best of the best, like David, oh my goodness, it's so fun reading his story because he's terrible. Like He's like someone to look forward to and you're like, oh my gosh. But everyone is unfaithful. Everyone is broken and our God anticipates that and he knows it. And here's the thing. When we ask Jesus to cover us, he's cut on our behalf. And how do you know that God is going to pour out all this joy on you? And how do you know that You're not going to be one of these people that's cut. It's because he's already done it. How you know God is going to gird himself, take up all of himself to give to you, he's already done it. He already came as Jesus. Jesus gave up a kingdom. He gave up comfort, a throne, being served to come and live a really hard life. And then to be betrayed and mocked, he knew all was going to happen. And ultimately die for our brokenness and for our sins so that we wouldn't be cut. And so now for us, it's just a matter of, do we believe it? If I believe it, then the fire, this fire on earth that he wishes were already kindled, it takes away the unrighteousness that's already in me. Nothing else, the Bible tells us, no amount of law, no amount of rule following can ever pull the poop out of our brownie mix. Nothing can take it out. We are contaminated. It is in us. When we are looked at, God goes, no, thank you. That's not what I want. But when we have Jesus in us, he's got the only fire that can take that contamination out. He's the only one that can separate that from us. He takes that to the cross and nails it on the cross and it dies there. And so for me, when I was reading this, I went, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. But then the question came up of, I know this, but do I believe it? Because it follows with interpreting the times. We know what Jesus has done and we know any day he's coming back. But do I talk like that? Do I act like that? Do I give like that? Do I have people over and I pay the bill and I just do whatever I can to be supportive of them like that? The Bible, this uh, chapter ends with settle with your accuser. Do I forgive like that? See, I know that I know Jesus is God and I know that all judgment has been handed over to him and I know that he's good and I know that he sees all injustice and he's going to make everything just. But if I really believed it, that would really change the way that I act. That would really change the way that I do things. If I really believed that, Jesus would do those things. I think that's for me been the biggest thing this week of I need to believe that. I need to believe Jesus can take the poop out of my brownie mix and I need to stop adding more. That Jesus has already seen how the game ends. He's already seen all the injustice. He's got a plan for it. And I can live today with this explosive joy that he's promising in the future. That's what the early church did. The early church was persecuted nonstop but yet you had this tiny ragtag group take over all of Rome. they take all over and just explode unlike anything else in history. This belief, this movement occurred and it's because they had this explosive joy with a quick ability to forgive. They believed in Jesus. They believed that he was God. They believed that he took care of them. He knew the number of hairs on their head, that he saw everything and he wouldn't let anything go that our God really is good. So guys, this week, let's believe it. Let's be people who watch what we say. Let's be people who are generous with others, who elevate God and then man, and we see how we can get our speech and our conduct to be so attractive to unbelievers that they go, wow, I need what that guy has. And the whole time, let it be flavored with this expectant joy that our God is going to gird himself for us. He's going to take everything in him for us in eternity. It's beautiful. So Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the promises in your word. And I pray, just like the disciples, that you help me with my unbelief, that you'd help me to believe that you are good in everything, that I would believe that you are to be trusted, that I can forgive others in the way that you've forgiven me and that I can just trust that you'll settle the debt. I can trust that you're the right judge and I don't have to go and settle it myself. So Jesus, thank you this day. It's in your name we pray, amen.